Uh, reading from Mark, chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was asleep. Uh, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Peace, be still." And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, "Why are you so afraid?" Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasens. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And, there came, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legions sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away. And began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and th thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a, 
a discharge of blood for 12 years and had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kami, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them, no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? If not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and uh, Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much uh, for your amazing gospel. That when Jesus came, he came to preach the kingdom that it had come in him. And that he came to explain what this kingdom was like. And especially what he, as the king, is like. We thank you that in these chapters uh, that we've looked at so far, uh, we have seen his authority, especially his authority to preach. We've seen his authority to forgive We've seen his authority over all sorts of things uh, in heaven and on earth. But mainly we see him tell us that what is key in the kingdom is to hear his words, which is exactly what we're doing right now. And so we pray that his words will be like seeds that will fall on good soil. That each one of us here, even as we struggle, uh, maybe to allow the devil to take away the word that is preached, or as we, as we worry about the, the rocks that might come up in life in the future that would test our faith and cause us to fall, or whether it is the, uh, 
the worldly things, the, the passions that try to draw attention away from Jesus and take away the word and choke it out. We pray that you'll remove all those things away from us to allow us to be fertile soil that will take in your word and produce fruit. And we pray that we would see indeed the greatness of Jesus today, that it would spur us to a great faith in him. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, during the week, uh, on Thursday night, uh, there was a graduation at Queensland Theological College uh, when one of our brothers, actually two of our brothers from our congregation, graduated. So one was Merv, uh, Mervin Chiang. He got his Graduate Diploma of Divinity. Sounds impressive, doesn't it? Right? Uh, so he graduated uh, from, uh, f- I think, four, four years or more of part-time study to be able to get this Graduate Diploma. It was a great, great uh, emotional time for him. Uh, and then Gabe, uh, Gabriel and April, who were um, student ministers, uh, from the Crossing Church in Singapore, who's been spending the last three years with us, he graduated with his uh, bachelor of divinity, uh, sorry, his master's of divinity as well. So he's gone back to serve in Singapore. Now, at that uh, graduation, uh, Mark Deva uh, from America, he came and preached uh, to all of us, and especially this uh, graduating batch. And he preached on the two parables that we didn't really look at that much last week, right? The, the parable of the, the seed. Uh, that, the, that a farmer planted and it grew without him really doing anything about it. And, and the seed that was as small as a mustard seed that grew into a big tree. And his uh, sermon was on uh, the point of uh, smallness, the problem of smallness. Right? Seed. Right? It starts off, the kingdom of God starts off seemingly so small. Uh, it could slip through your fingers uh, unnoticed and land on the ground. That's how small the kingdom of God kind of started. And this idea of a small, seemingly insignificant kingdom was a revolutionary teaching from Jesus because if you were a Jew, you would expect from the Old Testament that the kingdom of God would come with a bang, right? The minute that the Messiah came, all of the Romans and all the enemies of God's people would be wiped away and, and God's kingdom would be established in full with power for all to see. But of course, that wasn't the way it happened, right? As Jesus taught in a revolutionary way, the, seed, the kingdom of God came as a seed that started small and seemingly insignificant. But, right, 2,000 years later, the seed doesn't seem so small anymore, does it? Right? True to Jesus' words, that small seed has grown and grown and grown. We've seen and heard of the massive impact of Christianity on our world since those humble beginnings. Jesus Christ... The Son of God, the King, has been believed in and worshipped by millions, right? That sea has grown. But there is still an issue, isn't there? Many in our world still do not see the greatness of Jesus. And even us as Christians, we still have a smallness problem. We have trust issues, right? That Jesus really is that great, don't we? For many of us, we know intellectually that Jesus is great, but in practice, well, he's often as small to us as a mustard seed. In the way that we treat him, in the way that we view him, in the way that we trust him, it can still be very, very small. In our trials and troubles in life, in our battle against temptations and sin, when we're faced with academic pressures, unemployment, Work demands, singleness, infertility, challenges in our marriages, our children, emotional and mental distress, medical crisis, even impending death. 
we often struggle to fully entrust ourselves to Jesus, don't we? We doubt his goodness. We, we don't experience the peace and the calmness and the joy that comes from really having a big view of Jesus. Now, the previous section that we looked at last week is about the apparent smallness of the kingdom. Well, this section is about the obvious greatness of the king. Now, we move from the, the apparent smallness of the kingdom to the, to the uh, obvious greatness of the king in our passage today. Now, Jesus, up to this point, had been doing a lot of preaching. Now, he's going to do some proving, right? From preaching to proving. That's what this section is about, proving his greatness. Now, this section consists of three parts, right? If you heard the reading from Chi before, we have the famous stories, right? Calming the storm. The second story is casting out legion. And then the third story is this sandwich story between Jairus' daughter, who's dying, and this woman who's been bleeding, right? They're sandwiched together because the story finishes and ends with the daughter issue, and in the middle is the woman's issue. So they're kind of one story saying the, the same point, really. In fact, if, you, if you're listening carefully, right, to the whole reading, you would have heard so much repetition, right, throughout the story, that you had things like fear to a great problem. And then you, you heard about amazement right, and astonishment. Uh, you would have heard about uh, even repeating numbers if you were listening carefully. Right? They're all meant to be read together. And there's three points, really. Actually, one point in three, with three sub-points, right, in these stories. There is a, a great problem, isn't there? A great problem, a genuine impossibility. There is Jesus, who is God's king, all-powerful to save. And then there is a problem of faith. There is some kind of faith response that often doesn't seem very promising uh, in these stories. And the purpose of these three stories is to challenge what kind of view we have of Jesus. It's to challenge what kind of problems we think we have that we need Jesus to fix. And therefore, what kind of faith response we will have in light of who Jesus is and in light of what kind of problems that we have. Right? What problems Jesus our faith, right? That's what we're going to see here. Now, let's work through each of these episodes in turn. The great storm. Now, keep your Bibles open, right? Chapter 4, verse 35. We see Jesus and the disciples. They're in a boat, and they're at the end of a long day, right? So the chapter 4 has continued on. We're still at the same day of Jesus teaching the parable of the four souls, the teaching the parables uh, in chapter 4, and he's now at the end of the day, and he's tired. So tired that he's fast asleep in a boat, and there's a cushion, it's so nice to have a Christian to sleep on. Um, now, we know that being on a boat is not a new thing for these people, especially the fishermen who are part of his disciples. At least three of them were extremely seasoned fishermen. They grew up on a boat, and they would have experienced pretty much everything there is to experience on a boat except for this storm. It would seem that for the first time they meet a storm that is so exceptionally great, they feared for their lives. Like waves are so big, it's rising up over the sides of the boat and filling the boat up, and they're about to sink. Now, quite rudely, you'd have to say, but certainly with great desperation, they shake Jesus from his sleep, and they accuse Jesus. It's kind of strange, isn't it? After a long day of hearing Jesus preach, after days and weeks, perhaps, of seeing him perform miracles, they accuse Jesus, saying to him, Do you not care that we're about to die. Strange, isn't it? Do you not care that we're about to die? Are these strangers to Jesus or are they disciples of Jesus? These experienced fishermen, they genuinely believed that they were going to die. Now you think that fishermen would be used to these storms, but they, they're not used to this one. It was too much. 
the first sign that we have an impossibly great problem that they can't solve. Now Jesus awakes and he rebukes. And immediately the great storm is over. A replaced, as you see in verse 9, with what? A great storm replaced with a great calm. Right? The Greek word for great, we all know, right? It's mega. Right? There was a mega storm, and now just like that, there is a mega calm. Right? It's really, really, can you, can you try and imagine it, right? With the least amount imaginable, the great storm is calmed. It's tamed. He calls for peace. And immediately there is peace. If only it worked like that in my home, right? <laughs> Jesus' power is just immense, isn't it? His power to save ought to strike us as being even more immense given how easy it is for him to have calmed this storm. Now, having spoken to this storm, Jesus now turns his attention and speaks to his disciples. It's now his turn, in a way, to accuse them, isn't it? To question them. Why were you so afraid? I love the old English. Why were you so cravenly cowardly? Right? It's kind of the, the language that Jesus is using here. Why are you so cowardly? Why do you still have no faith? Right? Still have no faith. Now look back in verse 38. The, the, the disciples had called him rabbi, right? Teacher. <coughs> kind of a strange thing to call Jesus in the midst of a storm when you're wanting him to save you, isn't it? It, it, it smacks of a bit of lack of faith. Uh, hadn't they come to know who Jesus is after all they'd done, he'd done in their presence? You know, the healing or the, the causing the paralyzed to, to war, casting out evil spirits wherever he went, yet Jesus was still just a teacher to them. All right, it would seem that they still had no faith. That's strange, isn't it? They were afraid of the great storm, but now despite the great calm, what do we hear about these disciples? They had a great fear. In fact, literally, what it says here is they feared him with a great fear. There's another mega fear here. Mega storm, mega calm, and you would think mega peace? No. Extra fear is how the disciples have for Jesus. And not just the, not the good kind of fear, not, not the reverent, worshipping, faithful kind of fear, but clearly here it's a cowardly drawback from Jesus. Who is this guy? Right? They're freaked out, basically, that kind of fear of Jesus. Not a faithful one. The story moves on, and the boat now arrives on the other side of the sea, right? The storm's over. They get to the other side, and we're now in Gentile territory. It's the area of uh, the, gar- the of, it's called the Garissa, about the Garrisons, and it's part of this place called the Decapolis. Ten cities, a very famous region uh, in Gentile area, east, right, of Galilee. Now we see a man, once again, trapped in an impossible problem. And look at the details in the story, right? Mark's a beautiful storyteller, giving a, a, a clear picture of just how how, how deeply impossible this man's problem is. Verse 3, right? This man lived among the dead, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains, right? Not, not to mention ropes, not even with chains. In verse 4, even more detail, people had tried in the past, and, and they may even have succeeded, but, but not anymore. The control and power of the evil spirits within this man was so strong, the shackles and chains could contain this man no longer. And just for emphasis, Mark says it again in verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. As you read the story, it's a picture of this uh, uncontrollable bondage, isn't it? Unremitting torment. Day and night, we're told. He cried out in torment. He screamed without rest, without break. 
and he was self-harming, hurting himself. Now, a few verses later, we come to know of the horrific reality that he is called Legion. I don't think the man's name is Legion. It's the, the, the evil spirits, I think, who are called Legion. And Legion is a Roman group of soldiers that numbered up to five to 6,000. Five to 6,000 evil spirits had demonized this man. I can't even imagine that, right? We, we sometimes hear reports of, of someone getting demonized or, or, or some kind of spiritual battle, but, but you never imagine someone with five to 6,000 evil spirits demonizing them. And then we see this man running to Jesus. We're not sure if it's this man running to Jesus with, with, with hope or whether it's the evil spirits pushing this man to run to Jesus in fear. Right? We're not sure because the story doesn't really say. There's this curious mix of plurals and singles uh, uh, in the in story, story. right? There's he and they, uh, I and we. Right? It's, it's all very confusing who is in control. But it's obvious that when the man starts speaking, it's really the spirits that are in control. Right? They are the ones speaking. And they come to Jesus with their white flags already raised, right? There's no spiritual battle here. There's no anime kind of scene of spiritual forces fighting each other or, or any other kind of, you know, yin-yang, dark versus light, having a battle. No, it's, it's a foregone conclusion that Jesus is powerful in authority in every way over the evil spirits. No contest. They know who Jesus is. All the evil spirits do. There's no one who puts up a fight with Jesus when he was on earth. Because he came to overcome evil with every power to be able to do so. They know the king's absolute power and authority over them. And all they can do is to beg not to be tortured and not to be sent away from the land in which they want to dwell in. Maybe they were uh, territorial spirits, right, who wanted to stay where they were. And so they beg for Jesus to put them into the pigs. And we know it's Gentile region because there's pigs there, right? And in verse 13, we see Jesus give permission. So, give permission. Now, there's something very powerful, isn't it, about giving permission. Um, can I get a phone, Dad? Right? Can I go to my friend's birthday party? Uh, and with a simple yes or no, I get to control my daughter's social life. Isn't it? Such power. Right? Usually it's yes, isn't it? All right? And the army is even greater control, isn't it? It's crazy, right? Permission to speak, sir. Right? Permission to go to the toilet, sir. If you've ever never been in the army, you sh- it's, it's, this is what they do. They ask for permission to breathe almost, right? And as an officer, you, you feel the sense of power, which you can use for good or for evil, obviously. And Singapore officers all use it for good, don't they? Yeah, sure. Only people in authority give permission. And when they give permission, it happens, that shows how strong and powerful they are. And just like that, the evil spirits are cast out and into the pigs. 6,000 spirits into 2,000 pigs. And strangely, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about the detail in the story, they, they go and drown themselves, which kind of makes no sense, right? If the evil spirits need somewhere to dwell in, and if you read scriptures, you know that evil spirits do need to possess something or someone it would seem a strange thing for the evil spirits to want to off these pigs. Now, what I think is happening here, is my guess, is that the pigs themselves, they cannot take the torment of having the evil spirits within them. It's the pigs who wanted to end it. I think for them, it was simply unbearable. And it speaks to me, I think, of the enormous, horrific, 
impossible experience that the once possessed man experienced. It's amazing that he didn't drown himself in that lake. But that's all over now. All over now for that man. With the coming of Jesus, the one with all power and authority over the evil spirits, the man is saved from a life of abject terror. And we see this man in a beautiful picture of calmness and peace in verse 15, don't we? The demon-possessed man, we're told, the man who was legion, and we're given that detail to remind us of his previous state. What is he now? He's sitting down in control and calm. He is dressed like a normal, sane human being, restored socially to society, and he is in his right mind. He is at peace. He is whole again. All things made right. Because the all-powerful deliverer has come. Now, yet again, in this second story, we see the problem of faith, don't we? The city and country folk, they heard the news, they rushed to check out what had happened, and they are afraid, right? Just like the disciples, they are afraid. It's not a faith kind of fear. It's a faithless kind of fear. They push Jesus away, isn't it? The more they hear about what had happened, the more they want Jesus to get away from them and get away from their region. They beg Jesus, just like uh, the demon-possessed man, but this time they beg him to leave, and he does. Have you noticed that Jesus often gives in to what people beg for, even when they beg for him to leave? It's almost like God respects our decisions, which he does, doesn't he? By the same token, we have to respect his decision when he holds us accountable and judges us for our response to him. He respects what you want. You better respect what he will do in response. Now, Jesus um, preaches the kingdom. He's been proving his authority over evil and to save. And he he desires for people to respond in belief, but not all do, do they? Not all do. But thankfully, this episode isn't over, is it? Uh, We finally see faith. This once demon-possessed man came to Jesus as he was leaving, and he too begs. But for the first time, Jesus doesn't say yes, right, to his request. This man begs to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you stay in this region. Remember, we're in Gentile region for the first time in Mark's gospel, maybe for the first time in Jesus' life. And he tells the man to share the news, the news that Jesus is the Lord, the Jewish Messiah has come, and he's even here to deliver Gentiles. Now, this will be something that will get developed later on because Jesus doesn't come back into the Gentile regions much in the Gospels. But we see the beginnings of the Gentile mission right here. And this man is to start it, the first evangelist we meet in the New Testament. Now, we move on to the next story. Uh, Jesus returns back into Galilee. And we see two women, right, with great needs. Both of them are called daughters, right? If you notice in the story, they're called daughters. They're, they're connected by this 12 years kind of motif, 12 years of bleeding, 12 years old. They both need help. They both need to be made well, to be saved. There's a very important word, right, in Mark's gospel, which is translated in many ways to confuse us. Get well, heal, save. They all have the same Greek word called sozo, right, sozo. It can be translated either to heal or, or to save, Right? Uh, here we, we see that she asked to be made well, and, and Jairus asked Jesus to make his daughter well, the sozo word. The same word comes up when Jesus, when Jesus is mocked on the cross 
You sozoed others, now sozo yourself, right? Save yourself from the cross. It's that word that is this packed full of meaning. It reminds us of Isaiah, isn't it? The promise that through the stripes of the servant who suffers, we are healed. In the New Testament, we realize that the healing here ultimately is about salvation. But it comes through the picture of physical healing often. Now, we see in the story that the daughter's dad comes first, in verse 23, to Jesus to sozo his dying daughter. And then, uh, as he's about to go to his house, uh, this woman comes and approaches him who's been bleeding. And he, she asks, uh, or she doesn't ask actually, she just wants to touch his garments to be sozoed from her bleeding. Now, let's focus on the bleeding woman first, right? And then we'll come back to the dying daughter. Now, this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. Now, I'm not sure if you're a curious reader of the Bible, but have you wondered what kind of bleeding this woman has been having? It's a menstrual bleeding in most likely, all likelihood, right? If you were to look at the context and, and the way the words are used, it's probably menstrual bleeding for 12 straight years, not once a year, oh, sorry, once a month, right? So 12 times a year, but it's every single moment for 12 years, it would seem. Now, she had suffered greatly under the hands of many doctors, we are told. And you can imagine what doctors do. They poke, they prod, they treat, they fail, then they treat again. And this would be a great time to insert some kind of joke, right, about doctors. Uh, but there are all doctors in this uh, room, and they've all been very helpful to me, so I won't make a joke about you, right? Keep up your good work, okay? But for this woman, no help. In fact, she got worse. Can you imagine that? Seeing a doctor over and over again, and not just not getting better, but getting worse. I think some of you have experienced that, at least for some period of your life. But this woman has experienced it for 12 years straight. Not only that, she has spent all her money. She has spent all her money on all these treatments. But what we don't hear in the story is the implications of this bleed as a Jewish woman. If you know your Old Testament, to bled that long means she was always religiously unclean, which means that she was always excluded from society. If she were married she would have been divorced by now. The, her husband would have cast her out. And if she had wanted to have kids, she would not be able to have kids. I want you to put yourself in the story when you read the Bible, right? You just feel the gravity, the, the weight, the, the hopelessness, the impossible problem that she faced. In almost every way, she was like a dead woman walking. These two stories are about death, aren't they? And yet, with a touch of Jesus' garment, she is healed. Just with a touch. It is immediate, and it is total. Right? Jesus doesn't do anything. He's literally trying to push his way through a, a crowd that's pressing on him, and, and he doesn't do anything. But he knows something has happened, doesn't he? He knows. Now, the problem of faith in this episode is an interesting one. Right? It's really interesting. For the first time in this section, we do see faith. It was the faith of the woman who, which caused her to reach out to touch Jesus, right? To push her way through the crowds to touch Jesus. Now, if you wondered why Jesus would make it such a big deal to have to stop and to look around and, and seek out this woman, right, to figure out who it is that touched him. Right, you know, the disciples, you, you love them, don't you? They're like, what the heck? You know, there's like a million people pressing on you. What do you mean who touched you? But Jesus knows that someone has touched him in, with some kind of faith and that he had healed her, Right? If you wonder why does he seek her out? Now, once again, as, we, as he seeks her out, she's gripped with fear. 
She's trembling, right? Literally, she's shaking because she had done something and she, she didn't know how this Jesus guy would respond. She had faith, but she didn't really know who Jesus was. And not that he was seeking her out, she was freaking out, right? Because her, fear, her faith was, was a superstitious one. She didn't really know much. She just knew enough to have to reach out to touch. She had faith, but with unfounded fears. She had faith, but with very little knowledge. She had faith, but it was very superstitious, wasn't it? A hope of a magic cloth from a magic man. And I think what we see here is that Jesus didn't want to leave her that way. His concern for her is uh, for her to not be left with that superstitious faith is, 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 is founded because in the next chapter, chapter 6, if you read on, there are all these people now lining up trying to touch Jesus' clothes. Right? They don't really want Jesus for being the king. They want Jesus for his magic cloth. And Jesus turns around and tells her and straightens out her faith, strengthens it. Daughter, he says to her, your faith has made you well, right? Your faith in me, the one talking to you, your faith in me has made you well. In him, that he has the one, he is the one who sozoed her. He is the one who just healed her, but saved her. Because of her faith in Jesus, it won't be a temporary fix. It will be a peace and a deliverance that will last. Now, of course, in this story, as yet, we do not know how that will happen. But as we go on to the end of the gospel, we see that the reason why people can be sozoed and saved everlastingly is because of his death and resurrection, right? It's, it's a pointer forward to what he will achieve later on. Now, we get to our last uh, little episode, part of the third story, which is this uh, dying daughter. Except now, she's not dying anymore. She's dead. Okay? Now, if you were Jairus, looking at Jesus, mess around in this crowd, looking around for this woman, and having this chat, I think you'd be freaking out. And then you hear the news, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter is dead. I mean, I don't know what you'd feel. Mixture of fear, anger, you know, futility. The almost, improbable, impossible, the almost impossible problem of sickness has become now the impossible problem of death, hasn't it? That was certainly what the people were thinking. Right? They said in verse 35, don't worry, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. The assumption is that the teacher, remember the teacher word is here again, right? Cannot do anything about death. He may have been able to do something about sickness, but not death. Now, Jesus says, as we see in the story, there is no need for doubt. The issue of fear is raised, but Jesus knows hearts and says, don't fear. And especially this is for Jairus, I think, right? Don't fear, only believe. Then Jesus says to the grieving crowd of people in the house, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they manage to stop their commotion, their wailing and weeping, to laugh at Jesus, right? This is a mocking kind of laugh, okay? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that they had a misdiagnosis, right? They're not, he's not saying that she's not physically dead, but she is. What Jesus is saying is that this physical death in your eyes, to my eyes as the all-powerful king, is nothing. It's as if she was simply sleeping. By the power that I have to be able to raise the dead to life, her condition of physical death is nothing more than being asleep. And this is exactly what she does. He does, isn't it? He says to her, little girl, I, I say to you, be raised up. 
and she gets up. Right? She, she arose. I say to you, rise up, and she arose. It's the same word for Jesus being raised up from the dead. Right? It's another pre, precursor, another sign of what would be to come at the end of the story. Now, this girl was raised from her death more easily than I can wake up Zoe from her sleep. Okay? Uh, and if you've got teenagers in your house, right, you can try your hardest to, to wake your kids up, but they will not get up. But Jesus, when it comes to death, this is easy, even easier than us raising our children from their sleep. That's how easy it is for him because he is the all-powerful king, right? He is the one who has defeated death and raises people from the dead. Now this girl, once gripped by the pangs of death, is now up. And it's amazing the details that are there. Like she's now up walking and she's eating. It just sounds so normal, right? So mundane. She is just back being normally alive. It's a picture, once again, of just this calm, this peace, life as it should be, all restored. Now, finally, we have our problem of faith. What's the problem of faith here? Now, all we're told at the end of the story is that the disciples in the room and the girl's, uh, uh, girl's parents are amazed, right? And there's, there's no commentary on their faith. They're just amazed. And, and the story just moves on. Uh, where Jesus returns to his hometown. But I think this passage in chapter 6, verse 1 to 5 that follows is meant to be read in light of these three stories, right? Jesus' reputation always precedes him. And so as he enters into his hometown, and we see the responses here, the repetition of words, we know we're meant to read this as the problem of faith, right? People here are astonished, just as we saw in the previous chapter in a bit. They marvel because they've heard and they've seen. But what do they conclude? What do they believe? And here we see the problem of smallness, don't we? The problem of smallness. He's just the carpenter. Small view, James. Just the carpenter. We know his mom, Mary, and we know his brothers. He's just small, normal human being. They're marvel and they're astonished. not that they don't see but they conclude they have the eyes of no faith to see the smallness of Jesus. How astonishingly crazy is that? We keep being reminded, right? It's not in the, the lack of evidence, but in the face of overwhelming evidence that we see the lack of faith. It's fitting how Mark ends this section. It's kind of sad in a way why our English Bibles put it the way they do, but I think chapter 6, verse 6, line 1. Is how this section ends. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. They had been astonished, they had marveled, but now it is Jesus' turn to marvel. And the most marvelous, the most astonishing thing is that people will not believe. They will not believe in light of how great and all-powerful Jesus is. We young people have a word for that, right? SMH, right? Not Sydney Morning Herald for the older people. Shake my head, right? This is Jesus' shake-my-head kind of moment. This is Jesus' response to the crowd, to his family, to his disciples even. So the first question for us is this, isn't it? Do we have a smallness problem? Do we have a smallness problem when it comes to seeing Jesus? Now, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christian things, perhaps you never really understood how great Jesus is. Maybe you've never heard Jesus this way as we see in these words of God. We haven't really 
got the fact that Jesus has been preaching that he is God's eternal king, that he is the all-powerful ruler, that he is the only savior, and that now he's proving it. He's proved it. Now, if you had a small view of Jesus before, can I ask you, can I beg you to reconsider? Right? You cannot simply allow Jesus to remain small in your mind if that's not who he really is. If he really is this all-powerful, then you cannot simply move on with your life today and tomorrow in the same way that you've been up to this point. If Jesus really is this great, then your response to him has to match. So if you're not yet someone who sees Jesus this way, can I ask you to consider and to change your mind? His greatness demands something from you. Now what that is, we'll talk about as we get to the third point, what faith is. But for now, I want to talk to the Christians in this room, right? For those of us who do have this view of Jesus' greatness, yet we still have a smallness problem. We can find ourselves nodding our heads, even marveling, at the power of Jesus, but in our heart of hearts, in the decision-making center of our lives, in our deepest convictions, perhaps Jesus is still far too small. Perhaps he's still far too small. Now, why might that be? Why might it be that we can have a mental bigness, but a practical and, and spiritual smallness in our hearts? Now, I think a big reason for that is to see in the passage that we, we don't understand the greatness of our problem, right? We have a greatness problem. And the greatest problem here is that we don't understand the impossibility of the problem that we have that we need Jesus to fix. Right? We do not easily acknowledge that we face the impossible problem right, of, of the kind of storm and danger the disciples felt, the kind of torment and bondage that the man called Legion had, or the kind of wound that is so long and unremitting, and the kind of death that we are currently, or that we were currently experiencing as those outside of Christ. We read these stories, and they are extreme examples, but we are not that bad, correct? Our problem isn't that great. Right? I, I know, yes, I've got struggles, we admit that, yes, I feel somewhat trapped in my sin, but let's just be nice to ourselves. Let's call them struggles, right? Let's call it we have a, a brokenness, right? Rather than we are in absolute bondage. Yes, I do feel shameful, a bit shameful about my wrongdoings, and we might even nod our heads that we are dead in sin, yet in our hearts, we feel like we're good people. We feel like we were born good and that we are good. We do feel like we're religiously acceptable most of the time, or at least some of the time. There rarely is ever that desperation that these people in this story feel because we have a greatness problem. We do not see constantly the greatness of the problem that we need saving from. And if we don't see that, then we never really fully throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Right? If you always feel like you're somewhat good, that you have something to offer, then you don't always need the entire gift, do you? You won't fall down at the feet of Jesus. You won't beg. And that's what faith is. And our final problem here is the faith problem, isn't it? Do we have a faith problem? Now, it's very easy to misapply this passage 
And you'll hear it plenty of times that these stories are about how God will rescue us and deliver us from every problem in our lives. But hopefully I've already shown you throughout the story that these proofs are one-offs in Jesus' lifetime to show us the power that he ultimately has over death and sin in raising us to eternal deliverance. There isn't a promise in the New Testament that every single sickness and problem will be solved in this lifetime. As many of you should know, the 11 of the 12 apostles all died. They were not rescued from their trials. The Christians over the, the, the millennia have died from sicknesses. Because the promise here that's, that's being shown is the promise of eternal deliverance and salvation. But it's in light of that hope, it's faith in Jesus to be able to provide that eternal peace and joy that we hold on to as we face the storms of life today. Right? As we feel the bondage of, of sin and, and temptations in our lives. As we struggle with, with sickness and even impending death. It is the hope beyond this life that we hold on to that allows us to be able to trust ourselves unto Jesus even if we are not rescued from the storms and from singleness or unemployment or infertility or cancer or whatever else that life has to throw at us. It is the hope that Jesus has come to give as the all-powerful King who secures our eternal salvation. Now, I think one marker of how we know we don't have a faith problem is that amongst the storms of life, there is an inner peace. It may be a feeling for some. It may be an awareness. It may be a conviction. It is something that grounds you, that keeps you calm in the face of trial. Now, I don't want to say it's a feeling because not everyone feels peace in the same way. And I want to say that peace comes more with knowledge, a knowledge that goes deep, a faith that really understands the greatness of Jesus, the great problems that he has solved, the faith that we have to hold on to that gives us that peace and calmness as we walk through life. That even as we've seen in our congregation, that people can walk through the valleys of death and even die we see that, that peace that holds them together, that peace that they have through their faith in Christ. Let me pray that that will be the kind of peace that we experience as we entrust ourselves to the great King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much indeed for the revelation of your Son, your King, the all-powerful Savior. We thank you for these amazing stories that even a child can understand and marvel at. But even as we dive deep into them, we understand and we come to see just how great Jesus really is as he so easily, so easily overcomes all of our greatest impossible problems. We pray that as we sit under your word today, that your spirit will be at work in bringing your words to life and especially in bringing the bigness, the greatness of Jesus to life in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds that it might create, that it might grow in us a great faith in Him, so that no matter what we face in life, we will hold on in faith, that we will experience peace and calmness and joy as we hope for the eternal deliverance that is sure to come. This we pray in Jesus' most precious name.